you're listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on November 19th, 2021 at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Riyad Khaydin to speak on his research entitled Modern Art and Architecture in Morocco in the Aftershock of the 1960 Agadir Earthquake, which he conducted in Morocco as a grantee of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Riyad Khaydin studies global modern art and architecture with a focus on the region of West Asia, Middle East, and North Africa, MENA. He's working on a doctoral dissertation project on modernist art and architecture in Morocco related to the Agadir earthquake of 1960, entitled Spectral Modernisms, Decolonial Aesthetics and Haunting in the Aftershock of Morocco's Agadir Earthquake in 1960. His interests fall within three main clusters of study. The first is in comparative and planetary modernisms via post-colonial studies and critical theory. The second is in the study of perception, including aesthetics, phenomenology, psychoanalytic theory, cognitive psychology, and neuroscience. And the third is in materialisms, ranging from the micro-scale with technical studies of visual and material cultural production, including techniques, processes, technologies, and materials conservation science, to the macro-scale including Marxist historic materialism, new materialism, eco-criticism, and systems theory. Riyadh holds a BA in art history and a minor in chemistry from New York University, and a master's in the history of art and archaeology from the Institute of Fine Arts. His master's thesis, Mazdar City, Oriental City of the 21st Century, advised by Jean-Louis Cohen, looks at the urban design and architecture of Mazdar City in the United Arab Emirates as a new iteration of the orientalized city within a genealogy of recent urbanism in the Arab world, one that still succumbs to the imagined representations of the region created by European imperialism, yet embraces those stereotypes to construct new narratives about its people and its nascent nation. Previously, Riyadh has held positions at the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the Art Genome Pro Project at Artsy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Riyadh. Thank you for that very generous introduction, Jen. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit more about the earthquake in Agadir. What happened? What was the extent of the damage induced by the earthquake? Sure. Um, I, I, again, just wanted to say thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I remember my first visit here a few years ago, coming in as just a, a random visitor. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here now in the library, I'm recording a podcast, um, uh, one episode among many that I've listened to in the past before. So it's really nice to be here. Thank you again. So um, the Agadir earthquake occurred on February 29th, um, right before midnight of 1960. It was the third night of Ramadan. Um, so you can imagine people had been gathering to eat. They were among family, friends. They were out. Maybe they were praying Tarawih or the, the Ramadan um, evening prayers. Um, and all of a sudden, the earth starts trembling. In one of the main movie theaters there, actually, they, um, I just found out, um, were playing the film Godzilla. So <laughs> talk about auspicious. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, from some of the accounts that I've read, it's hard to even imagine or fathom what it would have been like. Um, it's nighttime. You know, it's only the third night of the lunar month. So there was barely any lunar light even from the moon. So it's, you know, pitch black, 
electricity gets cut very quickly um, and, you know, there's rubble all around you if you survived. And the situation the following morning was um, horrific and uh, it continued to deteriorate in the days after that to the point that the crown prince, Muli Hassan, had um, decided to evacuate the entire city and um, basically quarantine it for fear of some kind of biological outbreak that may have happened from all of the decomposing bodies underneath the rubble. Um, there were dogs um, and rats and cats kind of eating whatever they could, who had, that the rats had come up from the sewage systems, which were blocked up. So it was really quite a scene. Um, and it's hard to even, you know, this, this memory of it is often lost and it's been kind of covered over from the reconstruction that occurred. They really tried to clean up the city as quickly as they could. And in so doing, a lot of this trauma, a lot of this violence has been kind of taped over, if you will. And the traces of it, the specters of the actual, you know, the dead bodies who lay beneath the new rebuilt city, as well as the kind of figurative idea of specters of this, this moment of the earthquake and its traces down the road are kind of what I'm trying to recuperate and trying to tap into in my, in my research and my dissertation. Very interesting. Tell me a little bit more about the response and the aftermath. How was the earthquake viewed by the government and the experts it brought in to manage it? planners, architects, engineers, mm -hmm. others. What were some of the various perceptions of the earthquake and how to move forward? Yeah, um, so just as a, as a quick reminder, uh, Morocco officially gained its independence from France and Spain in 1956. So the earthquake occurred less than four years after um, independence. And the earthquake actually kind of presented the Moroccan state as, a, as an opportunity to kind of step in, build its first ever city in the wake of this horrific event. Um, and in so doing it, it kind of tried to use the earthquake, the rebuilding of Agadir to um, showcase its strength, showcase its capabilities, its knowledge in kind of state building. And so for the state, this was actually a big opportunity for the Moroccan government to move forward, if you will. And, and I view this event also as a kind of lightning rod or as a spark that really accelerated this process of nation building following independence um, to kind of leave behind certain colonial ideas of what Moroccan architecture even is, what its cities should look like. And a lot of the architects who stepped in were um, negotiating with those histories, grappling with them. There are conversations, um, criticism, a lot of even writing on what kind of style, what kind of image, what kind of aesthetics, a new future-oriented city following independence as a mode of decolonization through urban practice and architecture. What, what could that be? What would that be like? And at the same time, though, as I had mentioned, um, all of the survivors were evacuated and forced to leave the area. There were various um, camps set up around the perimeter, um, but even, you know, three miles out, you could still smell the, the noxious odors coming from the damage that occurred, especially the decomposing bodies. That's, you know, how strong it was, three miles, a radius of three miles, and you could still smell this stuff. You had to wear masks just to, to drive into the city. We were wearing masks today, so you kind of get a sense of like, you know, they were living through this pandemic, whoever was entering into this zone, um, this kind of biohazardous zone. From a kind of top level point of view, this was a, a really, you know, a big opportunity, a chance for Morocco to show itself. What about the creative community, mm. artists yeah. and others? 
Yeah, so this is a history that is even less plumbed. And one of the biggest art communities in Morocco at the time was in Casablanca and Rabat um, and the art school in Casablanca. Uh, beginning in 1962, had a, a new director come in. Um, his name is Farid Belkahia. He had been in Prague up until then, um, having worked and trained abroad for the second half of the 50s through the early 60s. And he gets called in to be the new director of the art school. And he comes in and he takes it in this new direction, trying to change the very pedagogy, what they teach, what even art practice looks like, what the different disciplines is to kind of flatten out, create a non-hierarchical art pedagogy. And this kind of idea of also collaboration among people with different disciplines. So a lot of these artists who come to be regarded as, um, you know, part of the avant-garde of Moroccan modernisms, many of them were actually away. They were outside of Morocco and had little, if any, connection at all to Agadir. But part of my research is heading in the direction of showing how the kind of secondary and tertiary effects of the earthquake itself affected other parts of Morocco, right? The actual physical damage, the seismological damage occurred just in Agadir. No other really parts of Morocco were touched by it per se. But in terms of governmental planning, in terms of state building, in terms of investment, in terms of, you know, where money is being sent. The art school in Casablanca, for example, is one of these places that receives a bigger budget. If Agadir and the architecture there was trying to head in a new way to leave this kind of colonial history behind, Farid Belkahia comes into the Casablanca School of Fine Arts and tries to do the same thing with art pedagogy, the teaching of art at the Fine Arts School. And then you have someone like uh, Mohamed Khairuddin, for example, um, writer, poet, novelist, um, who writes a fabulous book called Agadir in 1967. It's a surrealist take on the earthquake and on the rebuilding based on partially his own autobiographical experience as a governmental official, as a bureaucrat who was sent down to Agadir shortly after the earthquake um, to kind of oversee this process of seeing the extent of the damage, trying to plan for this new city. And he is very critical of the Moroccan state in this book. And he depicts Agadir in this way that um, part of his own practice of writing is something that he referred to as guerrilla linguistics. He was writing in French, but as a way to kind of decolonize you know, the idea of using French after independence was hotly debated. Mm -hmm. You know, should you write in French? Should you write in Arabic? Should you write in Tamazight or something like this? And for him, he was like, well, I was educated in French. Um, I can keep using French, but I'm going to kind of subvert it. The French verb détourner, for example, to kind of like hijack it and to, to subvert it by, you know, not using it always in the correct grammatical way, not capitalizing certain letters, not using punctuation marks. And so this was him kind of responding to the earthquake, but also representing the earthquake in text, in this highly kind of surrealist, in this haze of writing that almost makes you feel as though you've lived through the earthquake yourself through his writing. So there was all sorts of various responses. The artist André Elbaz was part of the Casablanca School of Fine Arts, um, painted also uh, an image of Agadir in 1960 in this mode of um, almost kind of recalling abstract expressionism, this kind of gestural abstraction of these thick brush marks going in various directions, using these kinds of reds and various shades of reds and pinks, perhaps evoking the blood that was spilled. And when you put it next to a photograph of the rubble, it almost looks like an abstracted version of one of these photographs. Hmm. 
Um, so there was all kinds of responses from the government, from top-down level planning, all kinds of experts and seismologists and engineers were brought in to develop new codes of building and how to build safely so that you can kind of resist a future earthquake that may happen. Um, and then you had artists responding to the state's strategy for how to manage this in kind of viewing Agadir as this opportunity for the state to show itself, prove itself. It also kind of expanded its authoritarian or its kind of managerial state level planning that a lot of people were critical of. So tell me a little bit more about how the earthquake played an important part in the history of modernist aesthetic production in Morocco. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so within Agadir itself, the core of the city where you find the city hall or El Baladia, uh, Hotel de Ville in French, and you have the central post office there designed by Jean-François Evaco. I think that was the image that I had sent in for the event. City Hall that was designed by Emile Juon and various kinds of housing buildings that were built to house the people who had been evacuated, kind of like public housing, as well as a central market, a kind of wholesale market, a firehouse, the kind of, you know, um, core ensemble of buildings that any city has at its kind of bare bones and they started with these kinds of things and the architects who came in to do this some were moroccan some were franco-moroccan in that they were born here during the colonial period and they worked here their whole lives um so you know the question are they french are they moroccan for me that doesn't really matter so much they lived in morocco their whole lives they have a french sounding name like jean-francois evaco but um uh so it was a team of Moroccan architects, French architects, and a couple of other, you know, a German and an Italian architect who took on this project to rebuild. And as I had mentioned, you know, the question is, what kind of style, what should these new buildings look like? Should they reference some kind of local vernacular architecture that's local to Agadir, to the south of Morocco, the region of Sousmassa, or should it be this kind of maybe generic modernism? Should it be like more European style of modernism? Um, and what they end up settling on is this style referred to generally as brutalism. Um, there isn't a singular definition of what brutalism is. It wasn't a cohesive movement that architects kind of pledged their allegiance to, or there was a singular leader. But generally speaking, brutalism refers to this history of architecture from the 1950s through the 60s, and even into the 70s sometimes, a type of architecture that's characterized by the use of raw reinforced concrete and kind of making that the focal point of the architecture itself. So kind of letting the materials speak for themselves, um, not painting it, not much ornamentation or decoration, um, just kind of letting the structure and it's, you know, it's built in concrete. And so kind of what you see is what you get. And even the term, you know, brutalism um, refers to the French term uh, béton brut, uh, brut meaning raw, béton concrete. So it's partially derives from that form of saying reinforced concrete in French, um, or raw concrete rather. And it also refers to this contemporaneous movement in art known as art brut, um, or raw art, sometimes translated as um, outsider art by Jean Dubuffet coined that term in the um, 50s. So it was this kind of style, and you see it taking place not just in Agadir, but in various parts of the world. Um, it, it kind of began in the UK as the UK began rebuilding after World War II. Um, this was a style that was relatively cheap to build with. You don't have much adornment. You don't have to spend much money on, you know, you're just building the structure. And that was the aesthetic. So it's kind of this pared down, austere, generally. Some people say that it's cold, 
But when you look at some of these buildings up close, you see that they have a lot of texture. For example, when they pour concrete into these molds that are created by wooden boxes, after the concrete is cast and they remove the boxes, you oftentimes see these wood grains or the panels of wood on the concrete itself. And it gives it this lovely texture. Um, so it's oftentimes kind of looked down upon or it's viewed as this kind of very harsh governmental, big state planning, often used for authoritarian, often used for housing projects. But, you know, you go to Boston, for example, and you also see that their city hall is built in this, um, or not city hall, but one of their major courthouses is also built in this brutalist style. And it was very common for newly independent, newly liberated countries that had been colonized adopted this kind of style of architecture too. You see it in Brasilia, for example, which also began um, as the new capital of Brazil in 1960. And in um, Chandigarh, for example, in India, um, the new capital of the Punjab region designed by Le Corbusier, for example, was in this similar kind of style, if we can call it that, of, of brutalism. And Le Corbusier himself was one of the pioneers, if not even kind of before it was even called brutalism, he was one of the first people to do this, um, this kind of show off concrete like this and pare it down and say that like the structure itself can be the aesthetic and um, it shouldn't have to be covered over to, to look good or interesting. In what other ways did the earthquake influence the discourse on modernism in Morocco? Yeah. So as I had briefly mentioned before, um, it was kind of this for some and I'm still trying to get a grasp of how widespread or how much the destruction itself of the city and images of that were disseminated across Morocco. Um, you know, all Moroccans had to pay a solidarity tax to help rebuild. Um, so in a way, everyone was brought together in that kind of way. And yet, I don't think many were, you know, they may have heard that there was an earthquake in Agadir. They may have heard that, you know, the city was wiped out, basically. But for a long time, Agadir was actually a fairly small city. So not all artists, for example, or architects or what have you, um, were directly responding to Agadir. What's interesting, however, is that some of the architects, in particular this duo, Abdeslam Farawi, and Patrice de Mazière, they ended up forming their own architectural office or practice. Um, and they were based in Rabat. And they ended up getting lots of commissions. They worked on projects all throughout Morocco. And toward the end of the decade, they actually teamed up with several of these artists from the Casablanca School of Fine Arts. They teamed up with Farid Belkahia, the new director, as well as an artist named Mohamed Shab'a. Mohamed Shab'a was a um, he, he had many different disciplines. He practiced um, graphic design, um, interior design. He, he went to school in Rome and, and studied interior design. He was a painter. He was a sculptor. And the third kind of main artist of this Casablanca school was uh, Mohamed Malehi. And the three of them um, teamed up with this architecture duo to build and work on these hotels in various parts of Morocco. But there's a concentration of three of them in the area of the Dades Gorges, the Gorge du Dades. And they came together and called these projects that they built Integrations, Integration. And the idea was that, sure, you'd bring the architects, they would kind of design the structure, the hotels, and then these artists would work on the interiors doing ceiling murals, for example, doing various other like wall panels, sometimes furniture, sometimes graphic design for the hotel. And so the interiors were these kinds of, the whole projects were these integrated spaces of various different kinds of art practice. So, you know, 
it's not like that the earthquake necessarily led directly to these hotel projects. But it's interesting that these architects got their start, Farawin de Mazière, in 1960 in Agadir. Um, and they went off and went on to have very successful careers. And they teamed up with these artists from Casablanca who were in a way brought together because of the earthquake and it's the state kind of wanting to push forward and decolonize itself. And this manifested in all sorts of different kinds of ways, including the art schools. Um, and so kind of, this is in 1960, the earthquake happens and you have all of these downstream effects throughout the decade and beyond. How does one go about analyzing the aesthetics of a catastrophe or mm. ecological aesthetics? Yeah. yeah um, that's something that I'm trying to explore in my own dissertation, ecological aesthetics or the aesthetics of catastrophe. Oftentimes these things are covered up, they're covered over, right? Like I had said that after the earthquake had happened and the city was evacuated, the whole thing was save for a few buildings that had survived intact, were stable. Almost everything was like bulldozed, cleared out, and it became a sort of tabula rasa as a starting point for the planners and the engineers to kind of imagine a new city from scratch. That, however, tends to obfuscate these histories that happened that even if everything was bulldozed and sanitized and everything was kind of cleared out, there are, again, these traces that remain. This trauma, for example, remains. And how much did this trauma, for example, this kind of haunting of the earthquake that I very much, you can feel if you go to Agadir today. Um, for me, I, I sense it when I'm there. Um, and so do the people who, who live there. Many of them were not from there or had not experienced earthquakes themselves, but they feel attached to this history. So the question is, how do we bring forward that which is hidden or that which we cannot necessarily directly perceive? Maybe if we look long enough or if we look in different places, these kinds of traces are often not in archives, for example. It's these kinds of histories from below that I'm trying to mine or I'm trying to bring forward bring to light, if you will. Um, the very word spectre, which is my dissertation project is called Spectral Modernisms. Spectre comes from the Latin root for specere, meaning to see or to look. Um, so it's, you know, when we think of specters, oftentimes they're like shadowy figures or kind of hidden haunting presences that are absent. So how do we see the specters? Um, there is this interesting dialectic of like looking and of being able to see of visibility and invisibility and I think that in the architecture itself, you can kind of partially see these traces of the earthquake that had been kind of covered up. You know, it's like, all right, look away, this happened, but let's move on. Um, and in the architecture itself, some of this remains. One reason why brutalism may have been an appropriate or attractive kind of style there is because it does project this kind of idea of strength and solidity at a time when everything had fallen down, you know? This idea of the concrete itself, you can see how thick and like how heavy these structures are mm -hmm. that oftentimes when you paint over them or decorate them, that structural solidity is kind of lost or covered over. And by exposing that, people can see like these buildings, perhaps they bring a sense of security. Um, but how much were these architects haunted by these lingering traces? You know, I, one of my chapters is called City of the Dead. And viewing Agadir, you know, there were more dead bodies underneath the new built city than there were living people. Wow. So how do we take that into account? How do we also take into account the non-human beings that were affected by the earthquake? Um, like I had mentioned, the rats and the dogs and the cats that were very much part of this ecosystem. As they started building new structures, they needed lots of concrete. 
and they started to build concrete factories around Agadir. And this ended up poisoning some of the water supplies. So farmers were affected by this, plants, ecosystems. Um, so this is kind of eco-critical approach of looking beyond just the human because the earthquake really, we view it as a catastrophe, right? Because so many people died. And yet this is a natural event. Earthquakes happen. And the question is, why was it that so many people died? And other kinds of beings also were affected by this. Some have argued, such as Daniel Williford or Spencer Sagala, who've been doing really great work from the point of view of historians. Sigala is an environmental historian, and Daniel Williford is a kind of um, historian of technology. And looking at the buildup to the earthquake, you know, the earthquake itself wasn't all that powerful. So it begs the question, why did so many people die then? Why was it so destructive? And they've argued rather explicitly that it was the French building policies of not investing in proper housing, not building proper infrastructure, for example. And it's partially because of that that you had so much wreckage. So 1960 is the height of the Cold War. Yes. Did Cold War politics play any role in the reconstruction, the response to the earthquake? Indeed. Spencer Sagala, who I just mentioned, his book Empire and Catastrophe um, sheds a lot of light on the Moroccan state very perhaps strategically was playing the different Cold War interests of mainly the U.S. and the Soviet Union, as well as the French who were vying for influence in Morocco at the time. And so they were able to get, for example, the U.S. to send master plans for Agadir, and they were able to get the French to do the same. And the Soviets were also trying to get Morocco into its sphere of orbit. Um, and so you get this kind of interesting competition among these various powers, all vying for influence and all vying for a say, sort of, in Morocco and to bring it in line with whatever it wants to do. And so the Moroccan state kind of played them off of each other <laughs> in an interesting way, received money from them as well for rebuilding Agadir and beyond. So the French were worried that, you know, after independence, you know, it would lose its ties to Morocco for better and mainly for worse. And so Morocco was trying to move beyond France and come to the U.S. and say we would really like to be closer with the U.S., especially, you know, the connections that, well, historically, of course, but we're, we're sitting in Tallium right here, but uh, especially during World War II, um, when Morocco was very important for the Allies as a launching pad for airstrikes against the Axis powers. And so... They weren't very happy with the plans who the State Department had put in charge to send plans. In the U.S., a relatively important firm of Howard Bartholomew and Associates, and they weren't really happy. They wanted a big-name American architect or planner, and they weren't getting that, so they kind of went back to the French and ultimately worked more closely with the French than with anyone else just because of the language. The architects themselves were trained in France or in French schools. There wasn't this kind of language barrier and they were closer together. I read somewhere that you couldn't really tell a, a Moroccan architect apart from a French architect. They were you know, working so closely together. They spoke the same language. They all had the same training. They went to the same schools. And then ultimately, um, it was the French who were most closely involved. But again, you do get this Agadir and the earthquake, the catastrophe as a stage for Cold War politics. There are so many layers to your research. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> what, what led you to choose this topic for your dissertation? Um, it was actually fairly recently that I started to pivot more um, in the direction of Agadir and the earthquake. The earthquake really itself is kind of the focus of my dissertation and its various kinds of aftershocks, if you will. 
So, I mean, initially I had wanted to study modernist art and architecture in Morocco, and this comes out of my training in art history. I always kind of gravitated more toward modernism. And for many, many years, for most of the history of our discipline, and even in many, many schools still today, when you take a course on modern art, you're mainly learning European and American modern art. And in particular, usually French, German, and uh, American or New York based primarily modernism. And so, you know, the excuse has always been that other parts of the world, sure, they may have had modernism, but it was belated or it was derivative of what Europe and America were doing. That, that's really where it originated. But there's been a whole school of scholars from various disciplines, including art history, who have pushed back rather forcefully on this kind of colonial notion of what modernism is. And modernism was, of course, a, a global phenomenon that affected every part of the world. And you couldn't have modernism or modernity without these kinds of interactions between different parts of the world. And that's why in a place like Paris, for example, you do get these various, perhaps the most well-known modernisms because they were getting all of these objects in from their colonies. And so my mom's side of my family is from Morocco. Um, and so I had come to visit very often. And I guess it was winter of 2014 and they had just opened the Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art in Rabat the Mohammed VI Museum. And going through that and seeing all of these different Moroccan artists, you know, the first exhibition was 100 Years of Moroccan Art from 1914 to 2014. I had, I had heard of some of these names before, seen works here and there in reproduction, but seeing these things in person with my own eyes really made me ask the question like, okay, so who's written about this stuff? What is there already that's been done on this? I, I took a lot of notes and I went back to the US, I was in New York at the time, and looked in the different art history libraries in New York and found that there's really not that much on this. And most of what's been published are by gallerists or people who are not trained in art history to do serious scholarly work. And so I figured that this perhaps could be an opening that, um, you know, not to say that you shouldn't write more books on Picasso or Pollock or what, what have you, but that there's a lot of other material that some of it has begun to be explored or has been explored in a shallow kind of way and that there's far more work to be done here. And it's very urgent and it's very pressing to kind of revise these histories. Um, and so this led me in the direction of modernisms in Morocco. And then a lot of things that I was doing began to connect to Agadir. It was initially supposed to be just a chapter, but my first draft of the chapter, I was not even done with it and it was already quite lengthy. And my brilliant advisor, so wise, kept kind of saying here and there, like, maybe you should make Agadir your dissertation because there's a lot you want to get to here and say. So I've kind of embraced that now and then I'm going fully in that direction. Fabulous. Well, there is a lot that you're covering and discovering and addressing and studying, and I look forward to Thank hearing you. more about it. But in the meantime, thank you to all for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. Riyadh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's lovely.